church? Man, I thought I'd finally made it, like I'm preaching by myself, this is a big deal, but I think when I, when I finally know when I made it is when I've been invited to read books to the children, like that Chris did, like that's, that's, that's where I know. I'm really glad you're here with us this morning. Open up your Bibles to John chapter 20, that's where we're going to be. Open up your phones if you want to, the text is going to be on the screen behind me as well, but we want to start by reading some text here, John chapter 20, verse 24 is where we're going to start. Join us there. Now Thomas, also known as Didymus, or the twin, one of the twelve, was not with the disciples when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, we've seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see the nail marks in his hands and put my finger where the nails were and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. So I've been getting these emails recently because I've done, I've done some shopping at Old Navy in the past. And so sometimes they send me an email, it makes me feel special. And one of their favorite subject lines is this one, you earned it, right? So their marketing algorithm has been following me, been looking at my purchasing history. And they say, based on my past actions, I've earned this sale or this clearance or something. I've earned it. So we've been in this front page series and we're asking ourselves questions that are being raised in our world. We're looking at headlines. And I don't know if maybe you've seen the headlines recently about the church, but church attendance is down a little bit. Pew Research Group gives these numbers that the percentage of millennials who designate themselves as unaffiliated with any faith has risen by about 10% since 2007. It's quite an increase. Now this morning, I don't want to talk about necessarily why people are leaving the church, but I think that these numbers point us to a different topic that is worth considering. In order for us to, uh, to do that, we're going to have a little bit of a history lesson, okay? So if we take a step back and look at thought and philosophy over the last hundred years or so, we notice that for a time, we humans thought pretty highly of ourselves and we thought that we could look with a fair amount of certainty at the world around us and describe what we saw. We could be fairly certain. But then as, as sometimes happens, there's a change in the winds and change in philosophy and people came by and, and actually said that, no, we can't know anything for certain. Everything is relative and subjective. You can't really know anything. And, and I think rightly so. This is where the church came by and raised our hand and said, um, excuse me, we offer hope and, and we offer truth. And it was in the midst of this skeptical environment that the church offered a firm foundation. And it was a good thing. It was a necessary thing. But as can sometimes happen, too much of a good thing can become a bad thing, right? And unfortunately, I, I think sometimes that hope and that truth has become hatred and certainty and so many of our churches have become places where certainty is secured and skepticism is silenced. And that makes me wonder if maybe this is why we have the numbers that we do. Have we earned it? Have we earned these numbers? It also makes me wonder maybe this is why our friend Thomas has retained his nickname for as long as he has, right? What's his nickname? Doubting Thomas. So in the passage that we read earlier, just before that passage, uh, Jesus' disciples are in a room, and the room is locked, and yet Jesus decides to go ahead and come on to the room anyways. 
And uh, the, the disciples are a little freaked out at first, but then they're also excited. And you can see their excitement in the scene that we read because one of their buddies wasn't with them, Thomas. And they try to express their excitement to Thomas. And you can hear it in their voices that, the, that their lives are, are now back on course. We've seen the Lord like we were afraid, our hopes and dreams were lost, but, but now he's back, he's alive, we've seen him. It's, it's incredible, he's back. But what's Thomas's response? I don't believe. And with those words, Thomas vocalizes the feelings of so many who will follow after him. Thomas doubts. And doubt isn't really received well by most of us, right? I feel like most of us probably prefer certainty, assurance, and confidence. In my life, that's usually what I prefer. But so many times we have Thomases. I think what we don't realize is that we actually have Thomases with us a lot. One of my favorite authors on the subject of doubt says that about 42% of Americans will undergo some sort of faith transition in their lives. 42%. That's not just millennials. That's everyone. That'll start turning around in your chairs, but that means that about four people in your row this morning have questions of faith. Think about that. The four out of 10 people that you're, you're passing in the hallways this morning have questions of faith. They're, they're Thomases. That four out of every 10 people, even in this room this morning and that room over there, are Thomases. Which is only a problem because we've created this tension <laughs> that many in our churches deal with doubt, but the majority of us distrust doubt. Many of our churches deal with doubt, but the majority of us distrust doubt. I don't just mean that those without doubt distrust doubt. I've been reminded this week that all of us have a certain sense of anxiety when it comes to certainty, right? So what's the result of this tension? Well, those of us with doubts are anxious about raising those doubts. How are you supposed to voice doubts whenever doubt isn't trusted? Do you begin to fear rejection or judgment? Even though I, I don't think that's what they would find at Highland. I mean, Highland, I, I've watched you just for a short five months, and even in those five months, I've seen the way that you, you love people well, you care for people well, you welcome people well, and man, do I wish that reality always outweighed perception. <laughs> But unfortunately, sometimes perception outweighs reality. And in this case, there's the perception that the church isn't the place to raise questions. And so unfortunately, there's still fear. How do I know? Well, the last two or three weeks, I took the chance to ask a few people to write some letters for me. And these are people, women and men, who are here at Highland, who are faithfully working through doubts and questions. And it was, it was great to read these letters because it's obvious that they know that you love them. They, they know that. And yet they're still afraid. And this morning I, I want to read you bits and pieces of, of these letters just to give you insight into their story, into their perspective. And as I do so, I, I know that you will, but, 
but I would ask that you listen to these letters kindly and respectfully and graciously and with an open heart, with an open mind, because you're going to find that, that these are the hearts and souls of your family. One person says, I've struggled with doubts in my faith my whole life. Nothing has ever seemed to be that black and white to me. I've always jealously sought out the faith that other Christians seem to so easily possess. Another person says that for a long time I've been ashamed and frustrated by my doubt. I haven't seen any good that's come from it. I felt that every other Christian has a very easy time believing in God, and I was the only one who could not grasp the most basic units of Christianity. Because of this, I've felt othered and outcasted at times. Another person writes that there's an inevitable feeling of loneliness. The feeling of always seeming to be on the periphery, even among friends I've known for decades, because I know that deeply, foundationally, we see the world in different ways. If statistics are remotely accurate, there are others in the building that feel this way, but I don't know them, and they likely don't know me. Man, when I, when I read those letters, when, when I look at those numbers I showed you earlier, it makes me think that maybe we've got some work to do. Because I think there are, there are two assumptions that, that come to the top that, that surround doubt. And one is that, that doubt is bad. And the other is that the church isn't the place to ask questions. And I think if we're going to love people well, if we're going to be a healthy family, we've got to do something to address those assumptions. So the rest of this morning, I, I want to help us maybe look at those assumptions and, and maybe see how the first one isn't true <laughs> and see how we can better address the second one. But I do want to say something, a couple of things, before we really jump into that. The first is to those of you in this room who deal with doubt. You are deeply loved. Deeply loved. Don't ever doubt that. This family, your family, loves you and cares for you Deeply. Like, I, I hope that this morning is just a tiny example of that love to you. I also hope this morning that you gain maybe a, a better appreciation for your faith story. Because I, I think yours is a beautiful one, one that is integral to this community's faith story. We need your story. I also would ask that you be patient with us. We're going to be clumsy. <laughs> Because we're people. This morning, I'm, I'm going to be clumsy as I try to give perspective on your faith story. But in light of all of that, please know that you are cared for. And you're loved. And for those of you in the room who, who don't deal with doubt, I know we talk about this because we know that you want to be a people and a place that love and serve and welcome people well. And I think that when, when, when especially we, we come to the issue of, of doubt, if we're gonna do that to the very best of our ability, it means that we're gonna have to work extra hard to address these assumptions that surround doubt. And it's gonna take all of us, all of us working together 
to help address these assumptions. And I think the first thing that we, that we all need, whether we are uh, people who deal with doubt or people who don't deal with doubt, I think we could all use a new view of doubt. And that's why we're in the story of Thomas. Because I think Thomas gives us a whole new perspective on uh, this issue of doubt. So that's where we're going to be for the rest of the morning. I hope you're on board with me, right? And, and just a reminder, why do we do this? Because we love each other. Because <laughs> we're a family. Because we want people to look at our family and say, wow, I want to be a part of that. You on board with me? All right. Well, one of the ways we're going to address these assumptions is by uh, actually testing our assumptions, literally testing our assumptions with true-false tests, okay? So get out your link notes. We're going to have some ways for you to interact. The, the questions are in the link, and, and I want you you're following along and circling your answers if you want to. But let's ask ourselves some questions about, about doubt and ask ourselves this question in particular. What if doubt isn't as undesirable as we might think? Okay? So first question, true or false? Thomas was the only one who doubted Jesus. False, right? The first thing we need to realize is that while Thomas is definitely not the last disciple to deal with doubt, he was never the only one to deal with doubt, right? Let's look at a different perspective on Jesus' appearance to his disciples. This is from Matthew chapter 28. This is just after Jesus has risen from the dead, okay? So, then the 11 disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. When they saw him, they worshiped him, but some doubted. Matthew gives us a different perspective on this event. And, and he shows us that there are, are, are those who, who worship him, but there are also some who, who doubted. And Matthew very honestly shares with us the reality that, that one of the responses that people have to the Christian faith is doubt. Thomas isn't the only one, even though we do kind of tend to single him out. And I wonder why, why we choose to single Thomas out. And I think it leads to another deep-seated fear and assumption that doubt is a sign of weakness. It's a sign of unfaithfully following Jesus. But look at the life of Thomas. You think Thomas was a weak follower? There's another story early on in the narrative where one of Jesus' best friends is sick and he's dying and Jesus wants to go and see him. But he lives in a town called Bethany. And unfortunately, not too long ago, Jesus was almost stoned to death in Bethany. And Jesus wants to go back to that place. And his disciples are like, Jesus, we can't go back there. We're going to die. But then there's this moment where one of the disciples chooses to speak up. Who is it? It's Thomas. Then Thomas said to the rest of the disciples, let us also go that we may die with him. True or false? Thomas is a weak follower. It's false, right? Thomas was no fragile follower. He's ready to follow Jesus anywhere, even if it might mean death. Which makes me wonder, like, what if doubt really isn't as undesirable as we might think that it is? We might assume that doubt is proof of the absence of faith, but what if doubt isn't proof of the absence of faith, but is a sure sign of the presence of faith? What if doubting and struggling and questioning doesn't point to little faith, but actually points to great faith? That's true of Thomas, isn't it? 
I mean, Thomas was one who took his faith seriously. He knew that when he committed to Jesus, it meant something. It required something. It might even require his life. Following Jesus, believing in Jesus, that's a huge decision, a life-committing, heart-changing decision. So Thomas wasn't weak. Doubt isn't a sign of weakness. It's a sign that you take your faith seriously. Thomas fully committed himself to Jesus, and he doubted. Okay, let's jump back to John chapter 20, and notice one other thing there about Thomas, okay? So John chapter 20, verse 26. We're going to read, we're going to read it in full in just a second, but first we want to point one thing out. Verse 26, a week later, his disciples were in the house again, and Thomas was with them. True or False. Thomas had abandoned the cause because of his doubt. He'd given up. False. Oh, isn't that cool? That Thomas is still with the disciples. That Thomas can remain close to people even if he can't quite claim what they claim. Even if he can't quite believe what they believe, he can remain close with them. And all of this makes me wonder, what, what if doubt isn't as undesirable as I might think? Maybe I have some work to do. Maybe, maybe we all have some work to do in reviewing our view of doubt. But, but maybe even once that's done, I think the next step that I have to take is to consider how I respond to doubt. How do I react to doubt? Reviewing my reactions. How do we react to doubt? Do we react in a way that's helpful or do we react in a way that's hurtful? Do we react in a way that's reflective of the heart of God? And if we're going to ask that question, then who, who do we need to look to for the answer? Jesus, right? So let's finish the story, because Jesus is about to come onto the scene, and I think one of the things he shows us is how to react to doubt. So back in John chapter 20. A week later, his disciples were in the house again, and Thomas was with them. Though the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here. See my hands. Reach out your hand and put it into my side. Stop doubting and believe. Thomas said to him, my Lord and my God. Is it true or false? Jesus completely despises doubt. False, right? Notice something about the timing of this event. So Jesus appears to his disciples. The disciples believe the disciples try and tell Thomas, Thomas doubts, and then a whole week goes by, and Thomas is still doubting. And Jesus is in town. <laughs> He's right down the road. At any point, Jesus could have shown up and corrected Thomas's doubt, but he doesn't. Makes me wonder, maybe doubt isn't as undesirable as we might think because Jesus doesn't seem to be in too much of a rush to save Thomas from his doubt. He waits a whole week before he comes. But then he does come. And it's one of my favorite parts of the story. He walks into the room, even though the doors are locked. And usually whenever you walk into rooms that are locked, you have to explain yourself and you have to calm people down a little bit. So he does that. And then what does he do next? 
Who's the first person he talks to? Then he said to Thomas. The first person Jesus talks to is Thomas. Thomas doesn't avoid the doubter. He talks directly to him. He talks to him lovingly and mercifully and and carefully. He doesn't talk to him with judgment or condemnation. He simply says, Thomas, I hear you've been asking for me. So true or false, Jesus avoids the skeptic. Oh, so false. But should we really be surprised? I mean, isn't this how Jesus always is? Jesus is always welcoming people who are, who are searching for a deeper relationship with him. He always welcomes those who are struggling in their search for him. He never turns away women or men with questions. Jesus is always one who embraces questions. He doesn't reject them with hostility. He embraces them with hospitality. So I think we need to ask ourselves, how do we respond to doubt? Do I respond with hostility or with hospitality? Okay, I know you've been itching to see what's under the the veil. It's time to unveil now. You were all so excited. One of my favorite paintings is this one. You recognize that one? Starry Night by Vincent Van Gogh. What do you know about Van Gogh's story? Besides the fact that he cut off his ear. I feel so bad for the guy. I think he and Thomas are brothers because there's just one part of their story that they cannot shake no matter how hard they try. Do you know why Van Gogh became a painter? Because he didn't have an ear for music. (laughs) Mike McGraw, that was for you, brother. For all my pun lovers. Van Gogh actually became a painter because he couldn't make it as a pastor. Did you know that? He worked as a missionary in a church in Belgium, but he had this really bad habit of giving away his money to the poor. Can you imagine that? He actually gave away his bed and chose to sleep on a haystack behind a bakery. And uh, because of that, he was a little unkempt. He was a little wrinkled. I think he probably smelled a little bad. And his church was embarrassed by him. His church fired him. The church drove him away. It was the church that drove Van Gogh to art. And as Van Gogh looked back over his life, he painted Starry Night. I've actually seen it in person. It's beautiful. I was about this far away. It's dark. It's dimensional. My art friends tell me it's full of emotion and struggle. I think what they mean is that you can't really tell here, you can't really tell on the screen, but there is paint heaped onto this canvas. As if Van Gogh is trying to tell us, I've seen my fair share of struggle. It's beautiful. He intermingles light and darkness. Despite the darkness in most of the scene, what you can notice at the very bottom of the, of the painting, Van Gogh puts the town. It's a cute little town. And even with the darkness, it's well lit. It's warm and, and welcoming. And I, I can imagine people like roaming the streets and popping in and out of pubs and shops and going about their lives. 
But then, in, in direct contrast to the well-lit town, in the middle of the painting, Van Gogh places the church. Have you ever noticed that? It's huge and ominous and dark, as if no one's there, or as if they don't want anyone there. It's as if Van Gogh is telling us that in the midst of darkness and struggle, the church has shut her doors, turned off the lights, and turned away people. At least that's the perception that Van Gogh had. And what I'm afraid of is that this is the perception that a lot of people have of the church. I'm afraid that many of our churches have become the darkened building. Now, I don't, I don't know how Van Gogh would paint Highland. What do you think? What I do know is that this is not the image that John had in mind when he painted the church. John gives us a much different perspective. We've got one more thing to discover if we return to the text. In John 20, John tells us that Thomas was with the disciples, which means that another really beautiful phrase is also true. If Thomas was with the disciples, then the disciples were with Thomas. Thomas hadn't abandoned the cause, but his friends hadn't abandoned him either. That even despite his struggles and his concerns and his questions, they didn't withdraw, they drew near. They didn't darken the doors, they didn't turn off the lights, they drew near. What's beautiful is that they created a space that looked a lot like the place where Jesus had just appeared. That's what a faithful family does. A faithful family creates spaces where Jesus has shown up before with the expectation that Jesus will show up again. They don't darken their doors. They don't turn off the lights. They create spaces where Jesus can show up again. They're warm. They're welcoming. And I think they have a slogan a lot like Motel 6. <laughs> Do you know that slogan? It was 1986, and Tom Bodette was hired for a single gig, a single gig commercial. And it was in the middle of this commercial that Tom uh, coined this genius phrase that's now like the heart and soul of the entire company. What's the phrase? Motel 6. We'll leave the light on for you. Oh my goodness. That's beautiful. Like, I think that's the church. That's Highland. That no matter the darkness, no matter the struggle, even in the midst of darkness and struggle, even with your, your doubts and your questions and your concerns, we won't shut the doors, we won't batten down the hatches, no matter how long the night might last, no matter what time of night you might come rolling in here, we're not gonna turn the light off. We'll leave the light on for you. Isn't that beautiful, church? Can you say that with me? We'll leave the light on for you. That's right. And you might be asking, what does that look like? What's it look like to leave our light on? My friend Mike McGarg uh, knows a, a thing or two about doubt. He just released a book on it. It's called Finding God in the Waves. I would say, put it on your Amazon list right now. But he says that the first and best response to anyone dealing with doubt, the first and best response is a hug. It's not apologetics. It's not scripture references. It's a hug. 
people need to know that they're not alone. We can do that, right? What's interesting is that as I uh, read over these letters, I also asked our friends to tell us what's been most helpful in their dealings with doubt. And they say something very similar to Mike. This is what they say has been most helpful. The most helpful thing has been loving friends who've patiently opened my perspective, because of which I've begun to realize that this doubt causes me to deepen my faith. Another person says that doubts and people with them are not problems that have to be solved. When we treat people with doubts as problems, that's all they'll ever be to us. No rhetoric or logic or argument is gonna be comforting to the doubting Christian. Instead, this is where they start preaching. Like any other struggle in the Christian walk, we have to follow Jesus' example and meet people where they are, build meaningful relationships, and live in fellowship and community with those of us who have doubts and faith. Couldn't have said it better myself. Let me say one more time. To those of you in this room, we can't say it enough, who deal with doubt, that you are deeply loved, that you're deeply valued, that we need your story. Your story is an integral part of this community's entire story. Without your story, we're missing something so important. Embrace your story. For those of us in the room who don't deal with doubt, let's keep committing ourselves to addressing these assumptions that surround doubt. Let's keep committing ourselves to creating spaces in our lives, in our workplaces, in our homes, here at Highland, places where we've seen Jesus show up before with the expectation, the the firm expectation that Jesus will show up again. Can we do that? I think it's a space kind of like this one. Let's stand and sing. Lay your burdens down, every care.